Poseidon for a reason. It's, it's a big character in the movie. It's hard to build things upside down. <laughs> of course, the most fun is when everything is smashed to pieces. The sets were so authentic and can move and, and collapse. There's sort of a wild ballet to this movie. The greatest thing about Hollywood is when they really go balls out. It's what you're in the movies for. Cast and crew, among them director Wolfgang Peterson, actors Kurt Russell, Josh Lucas, and Richard Dreyfuss, and production designer William Sandell of 2006's Poseidon. The IMAX was made for this remake of Irwin Allen's still uber-popular 1972 film, The Poseidon Adventure. But while the original mostly filmed aboard the legendary old gal of the sea, the Queen Mary, docked in Long Beach, California, with the addition of some impressive tilting gimbal sets, the 2006 film chose to create what was essentially the not only tilting, but also expandable, retractable, submersible, floatable, and blow-upable life-sized movie set version of what years ago would have been called an e-ticket ride at Disney World. You know, just so the cast didn't have to use their imaginations too much. <laughs> and that ride was created by one of Hollywood's most lauded production designers, the aforementioned William Sandell. He was the guy you heard saying it's hard to build things upside down, but Poseidon's only a smidgen of Sandel's living sets, kind of larger scale versions of the kinetic art sculptures he's been building since childhood. Now you say, yeah, you maybe don't know his name, well you definitely know his work. Ever see Total Recall, Outbreak, The Perfect Storm, Robocop, Small Soldiers, Hocus Pocus, Newsies, Air Force One, Paycheck, Deep Blue Sea, the Flintstones, Hotel for Dogs, or Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World? Well, those sets, those filmic worlds, and many more, were imagined and designed by the amazing Mr. Sandell. And we've got them. So sit back, crack one open, light them if you got them, open a steno pad and take some notes or whatever it is you do, because Sandell's taking us on a trip, both chill and informative as all hell at the same time, through behind-the-scenes Hollywood history. From his early days as a set dresser on films like Mean Streets, Truck Turner, Black Belt Jones, and Roger Corman's Big Bad Mama, to later day films which have actually become traveling art museum staples like Hocus Pocus. At any rate, prepare to have your mind blown. I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online, and welcome to an all-new episode of The Movie Sneak. Uh, first of all, let me say, uh, glad to be talking to you live. Uh, been bouncing uh, messages and social media yeah. postings back and forth for a while. 
Oh, I, I, I follow all the stuff that you post. It's always interesting. All your, you know, all the discussion of film and whatnot. I find it fascinating. Uh, and vice versa. Big time. Vice versa. Especially from your artistic standpoint. Uh, and, um, well, I guess th- this is, um, I would assume that most podcast interviews kind of follow a certain standard format. You know, hey, how did you get into this? How did you grow up? Uh, talking about some of the highlights. And we'll definitely do some of that. But, it's probably going to be in a slightly different order, uh, and it might not seem to make sense to some people at first, but I promise it connects all together like a bunch of pearls on a necklace by the time we get to the end. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm up for anything. Well, first I want to start off with um, what you're doing presently, because um, just following your posting, there seems to be a lot of traveling that you've been doing, a lot of cataloging. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I retired. I kind of retired early. And uh, got out of the movie business about five, six years ago. And uh, I, I was a sculpture, a kinetic uh, assemblage artist before, you know, films. You know, mm-hmm. back when I was 19, 20, I had a gallery ha- handling me you know, down in Beverly Hills. And that's how I met all these film people, kind of got seduced ah. away. So I'm back to doing that. I've always been doing that. And, uh, you know, people send me scripts all the time. And I'm in the academy. I'm active in the academy. and. I've actually uh, a producer of the new Hocus Pocus movie just called me early this morning about a bunch of stuff. We're going to have lunch next week. So, you know, I'm, I see all my movie friends, but I just don't want to do I, I still have Gersha still my agency, David and everybody over there. But I, I, don't, I just don't I want to not do movies anymore. So. But, yeah, you seem to have been doing a lot of traveling and uh, doing a lot. It, it seems to me it almost seems like you're making a deliberate uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it almost seems like you're making a deliberate um, uh, in, intent to introduce a lot of what some people might consider little-known artistic achievements right under their own nose. Like you mentioned something about the D.H. Lawrence paintings and house, the Armagosta Opera House and what have you. Uh, well, I, I've uh, I've always been a traveler, and I, I've traveled quite a bit in the movie business, but I've always been a traveler, and I love the desert. I bought a place out in Bombay Beach by the Salton Sea outside of Palm Springs here. And um, I don't know, I, I see things, you know, I, I, I like to think there's a little style to the little videos I shoot. I shoot a lot with my friend Dot out there who mm-hmm. lives in a desert camp. And uh, I don't know, I'm fascinated by things. I, I never stopped being fascinated by things, that's for sure. You know, I spent my whole life with cameras. I have a lot of cameras <laughs> taking pictures <laughs> and, you know, trying to, you know, get the studio interested in shooting something and bringing pictures back. So I'm you know, it's hard to stop that, you know, once you're out there. I see things that are so interesting, I just can't help but think that other people would find them interesting. So, you know, try not to be obnoxious, particularly during the pandemic thing here. But, uh, you know, when you cruise in the desert, I'm by myself, you know, and I can, I don't have to worry about staying inside with a mask on. So that was a break. Very cool. Now, uh, here's one of those off, uh, off-center off things that may not seem like it has anything to do with anything, but I swear it does. Sure. Not sure why, <laughs> but my entire life, uh, just from Robert Louis Stevenson, the Alice R. McLean novels, to Peter Benchley, Clive Coaster, Tom Clancy, I've always been fascinated by the sea. Yeah. I mean, um, if left to my brothers, I'd design a house that looked like Rex Harrison's Captain Greg's house in The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Uh, it's you know? one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Don't get me going on that. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, same here. In fact, that's where my uh, website, the whole really? Gold Cottage thing comes from. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> the most romantic movie. I saw it as a child on TV, and I still try to watch it every 
year or so, you know, I find it so romantic and mysterious. It really is. At that Bernard Herman school oh, and uh, just God. the end and oh man. I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps just you talking about it, you know. I think I'm gonna have to watch that again tonight. That's like an early AM movie for me too. I can't watch it in the daytime. Oh yeah, watch it's gotta be in the evening. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. But uh as far as design work, I mean like from William Krieber's work on the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. John Decor, Raise the Titanic. Uh, Ken Adam, Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> and your Perfect Storm, Master and Commander, Poseidon. Um, yeah. Actors and writers often get into the zone. And sometimes it could be as something as complex as, you know, going method. Or sometimes it could be something as simple as I think Harrison Ford once mentioned. What helped him get into the Blade Runner Deckard character was simply the haircut. Helped him find yeah. the part. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, so, I mean, in your film work in, I guess, particular and your other stuff in general, do you find that you have to, quote unquote, get there? Or did you find that you had to get there for certain films? And how did you? Was there a way or did you just eventually sink into the vibe? Because uh, a lot of detail. I mean, from the high tech stuff to the uh, period stuff, a lot of detail. I, you know, I like any art department, I do my research, but I... On Perfect Storm, um, that was, uh, you know, I was in Gloucester a lot. And uh, I'd been down there a little bit when we did Hocus Pocus up in Salem. And I've been in Boston a lot here and there doing things and scouting for things. But, you know, I stayed in Gloucester a lot. And I was out out there dancing, drinking, living with all those, uh, all the people. Gloucester is like a real fishing town that's not a like a little town you go take photographs in with art galleries those are t- tough people there and you know when we made uh, i stayed in the bed and breakfast that sebastian younger stayed in when he saw that uh, that storm come in where he wrote his that great book and uh, it's you know pretty it's it's like a ghost in mrs mirror it's pretty rough and lonely out on some of those uh, you know seacoasts and uh, you, you know when we were up there Making Perfect Storm, I mean, I had a lot of work to do. We built the whole boat on stage at Warner's and bar, the bars on stage. All the stuff is on stage at Warner's. But we still built a boat in Gloucester and we still built the Crow's Nest exteriors and we still built a lot of stuff in, in Boston or at Gloucester. But, you know, it was only 10 years after this horrible tragedy uh, happened. And, you know, we're out there drinking every night and hanging out me and the crew with the people that knew the people that died in the ship, you know, the sisters and brothers and lovers of all those guys and sort of weird. Like I was looking around one night and I was thinking like, God, I talked to Ernie, Ernie Bishop was the decorator on the picture. I was like, Ernie, are we like in the movie or what's happening here? It's so weird. And so you, you do immerse yourself in all of that, you know, you learn all that lingo and you learn how a ship works and how strong the engines are. And, um, you know, and I was on a lot of ships, took a million pictures, of course, you know, so when we rebuilt the ship, a ship that matched the uh, Andrea Gale back on stage, we had every bolt, every bolt was correct. We had, you know, we always have experts around to tell us on any movie, you know, what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right. They, everybody's always been quite complimentary on the shows I've done. I've always had a pretty good art department. I work with a great bunch of people, great set designers, art directors decorators you know so I, I i do immerse myself in it i think that's true but i would do that if it was you know i immersed myself in cartoons when we did flintstones mm-hmm. or, or if i'm mm-hmm. building a rocket ship i immerse my you know we, 
Paul Verhoeven and I were down in NASA walking on the space station, you know, down in Houston when we did Total Recall. And mm-hmm. we're up at the Ames Research Institute here in California, you know, the NASA place learning about where on Mars, how, you know, how you would live on Mars if one was to go to Mars. So, you know, that's the, that's the best part of my job is, you know, where does a kid like me just from the suburbs of LA get to go walk on the space station or get to, right. Exactly. Yeah. I would, I would never, I never dreamed I'd be people were, and and they're paying me and they're flying me all over the world to look at things and Mm -hmm. do things and go into the jungle and go here and do that. And, meet so-and-so and i would never have done that you know so it's the movies have been good to me that way that's for sure but i think anybody would say that you know it opens up a lot of vistas i've met farmers in the midwest driven tractors across nebraska i've river rafted up the colorado you know all, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> oh man because they may they tell you to go there they give you some money they say go yeah. go there look around See if there's a movie there. See if we can shoot there, and we'll see you in a week or two. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I hop on a <laughs> okay, sure. Hop on a plane. If you want me to go meet somebody. <laughs> look around. <laughs> well, that's an awesome, perfect segue into uh, uh, the next category where I wanted to do a little backtracking. Uh, Stephen King uh, once, uh, in one of those wonderful forwards he writes to a lot of his short story collections, mm-hmm. he once, uh, when somebody asked him, uh, "Why do you write what you do?" His response was, what makes you think I have a choice? Mm. I always said that was the greatest response. Mm-hmm. And I think um, most people, when they're young, go through a phase, uh, I, I guess especially guys. Like when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, where you go through this rampant imagination, inventor, artist, Thomas Edison, Da Vinci, yes. Jules Verne, oh, Benjamin totally. Franklin, George Washington Carver thing. Totally, you know? <laughs> totally I was that. <laughs> And Stephen King once described everybody's mind and soul as sort of a mesh, a screen, and everybody's meshes are different sizes. So stuff flows through everyone's mesh every day, and because they're different sizes, what might get caught up in one person's mesh might pass through someone else's. Mm. And usually the stuff that gets caught up in your mesh over time kind of develops into, I guess in a negative way, it could be, a dangerous obsession in a very positive way. It could be a creative artistic yeah. obsession, which comes to yeah. define your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a very fine mesh. Uh, yeah. I, I see. And I've had, by the way, I've had a very happy life and good life, you know, nice mm-hmm. parents, nice, nothing really tragic has ever happened mm-hmm. to me, cool. but I, my mesh is pretty fine, but it's for the details of life. You know, when I, when people walk into the sets that I design that I'm in charge of, even though I work with, amazing people you know so i'm not a one-man band you know Mm -hmm. i'm surrounded by these artisans and painters and carpenters it really has a a feel of a a real look i mean i i I pride myself on the details that make me i had no interest film wise of ever going to shoot on locate to shoot something on to shoot a bar on location is uninteresting to me i want to build Mm -hmm. the bar on stage Mm -hmm. so all that make-believe that all comes from you know, re- reading, well, the little rascals, how they were always mm-hmm. building things. Yeah, yeah. Rube, Rube Goldberg cartoons, all the mm-hmm. stuff you sort of alluded to, you know, in the in the Sunday papers. I want to build things, make things. I, I have, and it, it sometimes it's been at the expense of a better script. I mean, in the old days, I used to get five scripts the moment I was done with anything. And, wow. And, and I would turn, this is how luxurious it was and back in the 80s, 90s early 2000s and if something was i live in los angeles over the you know or i lived in burbank at the time near warner's but it's like if something was over the hill 
I didn't take it. I stayed at Universal or Disney or Universal. That's how luxurious life was. Now you're lucky to find a picture that shoots in LA and not in Budapest or Vancouver or Atlanta or something like that. But I, I looked for pictures that had a lot of uh, set construction, a lot of sets to build. And um, I wanted to earn my bones that way working. At, so I worked on mostly studio pictures, mostly on stage. And so I got a big rep for that because that's a, that's a, that's a horse of a different color than just standing around having coffee while people shoot the exterior of a, of a, uh, of a, of an old ranch somewhere, you know, not that there's not work that's needed there, but it's not like imagining it yourself. Creating a whole world. Yeah. And creating the whole world. And I, I, I'll bet you I'm saying what most art directors would say is no, it's more fun to create it. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's our, that's, that's the good part of our job. Now, I guess sort of the, um, 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 the, the, uh, evolutionary missing link uh, between the film world and your childhood. You had mentioned how you had things in galleries and that's how you met the filmmakers. Yeah. But I mean, at, at a young age, you were building kinetic sculptures and such, right? Yes. Yeah. I so, always I'm, was, uh, I was always a, a builder and I always had a wood shop and mm -hmm. I always was designing things. Mm -hmm. I had nobody in the film business though. And no, all my uh, parents and, Great grandparents were business people in the San Fernando Valley. They owned stores and businesses and things like that. So I didn't have anybody. I just met these film people, you know, mm -hmm. who kind of uh, seduced me away, you know, said, mm -hmm. quit, quit doing those little stupid things you're doing and come do bigger, more expensive, <laughs> stupid things. I mean, I've said to them, I've said to somebody, I build these kind of big boxes that you look into and things go around and pop out. And I said, <laughs> my boxes are the same thing I was doing at 20 as a million dollar set on stage, except it's got George Clooney in it, not a doll set <laughs> moving or something. <laughs> so, but it's all, it's all big kinetic boxes. <laughs> So were you kind of like the, uh, you mentioned that most of your uh, family growing up are like, you know, business people. So were you kind of like the oddball in the family, the creative oddball? Uh, uh, well, I kind of a little bit, but I, I, uh, my, my parents were certainly horrified that I mm -hmm. got involved with the movie business, but mm -hmm. uh, I had an aunt who was an art teacher and a painter, you know, my oh, nice. mom's older sister. So there, I, I always, there always was, oh, there's other things to do besides be a businessman like my dad. Right. So, uh, you know, it, but after a few movies, when he saw my name on the screen, then it was like, hey, my son's in the movie business. Wow, he really is doing this, yeah. He turned, yeah, he turned to, but, you know, like all parents, they're worried, you know. Yeah. They, they, they know the life out there, like, you know, it's hard to make a buck in whatever business you're in. So I'm sure they were, they were, they were good parents that way. They worried about me, but then the moment I, they saw I was happy and didn't need to borrow any more money from them, then I was, <laughs> then I was good to go. Yeah. Cool. Now, during those early years, uh, like when you were doing you know, set dressing and assistant art director on yeah. movies like Invasion of the B-Girls and Mean Streets oh, yeah. and Truck Turner and what have you. In fact, I remember a while back I had posted something on social media about one of my favorite movies growing up, Cornbread Earl and Me. I couldn't believe it when you posted something. I called the decorator who decorated that right away. I said, did he, <laughs> did he ever contact you, Craig? By any chance? Oh, um, I don't Gould? think so, no. Well, he should because he's quite emotional when I read him what you wrote. Really? Which, by the way, was beautiful. And it's exactly how Bobby, Bobby Gould, G-O-U-L-D, who was the decorator, felt about that movie. It's, oh, cool. It's a, 
uh, I, and by the way, I, I also thought that that was a very interesting love and it was tribute to those that era of films. And nobody ever talks about Cornbread Earl and me. You know, oh and man, I, that movie brings tears to my eyes, man. <laughs> no, I. Everybody I talk to, well, it's only just Bobby, but there's some other. You know what's funny? I'll tell you a funny story. Mm. Uh, this, he's my best friend, Bob Gould. Mm. We both got nominated and won the BAFTA for Master and Commander, and we, mm-hmm. he's got nominated for the artist, and he's, we've done about 15 movies together. But we're nice. we're best friends. Besides that, he was doing Cornbread Earl and Me down on he's he'd been his dad was a famous uh, first assistant director and directed a bunch of b movies but so he started in the business young so he's down there on cornbread earl and me down around fourth street and kind of a real rough area of la uh-huh. and i'm down there on my first film because i i knew marty scorsese socially so he got me to work on his first film mean streets cool and he tells the funniest story i somebody was yelling we need more trash can we need more junk so i went down the way and stole a bunch of trash cans <laughs> from, an, from an alley, and I moved them up to our alley. And pretty soon, this decorator comes up, Bobby, little knowing he would soon be my best friend and longtime decorator. He says, "Hey, who took our set dressing from Cornbread Earl?" Where's <laughs> <laughs> trash go, cans? Oh, I thought it was real stuff. <laughs> it looked all real to me, so I just so we needed it real quick. He said, "Give me my." junk back <laughs> which is probably the greatest compliment you know it looks so real junk was decorated in there so well that i thought it was weird. <laughs> so anyway but I, I thought you should know that i'm sorry he didn't call you because uh he'd be interesting to talk to about the film you know oh cool no i'll reach out to I'll him make I'll, sure, uh, I'll, I'll make sure he messages you after this call cool. i would love to chat with him yeah yeah that'd be awesome mm-hmm. yeah no cool i mean uh Awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, I guess a couple more. Th- I mean, we'll definitely get to some well, of the know, major stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. All, all, the, all these movies, like you started to reference, like, well, Truck Turner, uh, Black mm-hmm. Belt Jones, Invasion of the B-Girls, those were all mm-hmm. Sequoia pictures. Uh, Fred Weintraub, who was my kind of my, well, he was, I met him when he was the VP at, at Warner's. He just sort uh-huh. of uh, brought Woodstock there, kind of saved the studio, actually. Cool bringing that the music thing and then uh, he was an independent producer there so i did all those pictures for him and lived at his house for three years but then all Uh the like were roger corman movies about a 10 where i was you know the prop master on this the art director on that you know i was that's my film school you know Mm -hmm. like like a lot of people roger corman you know new world pictures yeah yeah i mean when i was there joe was still cutting dante was still cutting trailers there and alan arkin was there and Ron Howard was getting ready to direct the, my dust, you know, his first big, Hey, Bill, you want to work on my movie? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm doing another movie. And it, I mean, it was just a hub of uh, young, eager right. filmmakers, you know. So that was good schooling. You know, I, I learned, you know, I, I was a stuntman in one. I was a, wow. I was an effects guy helping the effects department. And yeah, he had a multi task when you're working for roger you know yeah hey we need somebody over there i said i'll do it you know and then you jump off a cliff or you'd go load cam i used to load aries you know in the camera we Mm -hmm. lost the cameraman oh i had to learn to load cameras back in the camera truck but you know that's all kind of in retrospect at the time you're making no money yeah i was gonna say how did you keep the lights on uh well you know what I'm telling you, in those days, I had a house, a really nice house up in, in the canyons, up by Topanga Canyon. I shared with a guy who was a film editor. We had, you know, we were, God knows how much money 
we were making, but the house cost three hundred dollars, and wow. we ate, we ate pizza and donuts, and we had all we had all the money we needed, hmm? and we hardly were ever working. We're always off work. We're always looking for work. But I'm selling my sculptures, and I think it's so different nowadays. Things are so expensive for kids, mm. and you know, but you you know you could survive on a on a weird Roger Corman picture diet because those those pictures were only like three weeks pops mm-hmm. you know maybe one week to prep and but you know we shot in oklahoma we shot uh uh, uh fast charlie the moonbeam rider with brenda vaccaro mm-hmm. and david Carradine. And th- there we did sets and we did things and never promised you a rose garden which was kind of a mm-hmm. prestigious uh, picture for mm-hmm. roger from the best-selling book we you know so there were some films that weren't so quick but you know they were all period pieces i'm looking i have posters up i'm looking at them right now you know angie dickinson and uh, William Shatner and everybody starring in Big uh, Bad Mama, right? Big Bad Mama. So I was the prop master. It was. Uh, I really enjoyed being a prop master. I always loved being a prop master. Nice. <laughs> and then we did uh, Crazy Mama with Cloris Leachman and mm-hmm. Stuart Whitman and Jim Backus and Ann Southern. And you know, you got to meet all these. It was fun, and they're all period pictures, so they're fun artistically. You know, I'm loading machine guns and teaching Angie how to shoot a machine gun, and I'm. Loading gun, you know, John Milius came and Jonathan Demi was Jonathan Demi was directing uh, uh, Crazy Mama. So he, Milius came over to do a stunt and weird um, Milius is showing me how to load guns and help him. You know, it's just I met a whole bunch of interesting people back in those days. That's these. How do they afford I was de- I maybe that answers the question. I was going to say, how, how do they afford these costumes and these props and these like old, old old guns guns and oh, things like that for know, these films there, there was enough money to we had a lot of old cars on both these movies big bad mama was depression era it was like a right around bonnie and clyde mm-hmm. and the cloris leachman one crazy mama was set in the 50s well it's like you know judicious location scouting and uh, you know there are always cars for rent appropriate mm-hmm. cars and you know and they're the all these they shoot they shoot them quick right i don't even know uh, what the budgets are but i imagine they're like 150,000 budgets or something like that, you know, not much money, maybe 300 on some of them, but uh, I don't know, but we had my, you know, not a lot, never a lot of money. I had many mm-hmm. fights with Roger. Oh, you're going to killing me, you know, and all this stuff. <laughs> I don't know, but it was fun. That's for cool. sure. Cool. Well, I guess uh, awesome stories. Now just want to hit, uh, I mean, we'll definitely get to, I guess uh, some of those um, um, recurring creative relationships with people like Paul Verhoeven and 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 uh Wolfgang Peterson but just really quick um want to just hit a few film highlights and I guess by film highlights um not necessarily what critics might consider film highlights in your career although some probably would but uh ones that when I first saw these films and saw the production design they elicited a what the fuck kind of reaction out of me <laughs> okay that's you what know. We, that's what we want to that's <laughs> right <what> right <laughs> So, just a few comments uh, from the mouth of the mad visual scientist, if you will, okay. regarding some of them. Sure. And some of them might seem a little odd, maybe not to you, but probably to some listeners. But starting with Hotel for Dogs. Uh, yeah. I get the feeling that Hotel for Dogs, you know, just a, a, a film designed aimed at children. Yes. Um, it almost seemed, I get the feel that it may have held kind of a personal pleasure for you because... The main character in the film, the 13-year-old guy um, uh, played by Jack Austin, he's kind of a clever inventor of sorts, and he 
in this old hotel, in this place where they're keeping all the, the animals, he designs the feeding machines and the fetching machines and, and all that stuff. Yeah, that's totally the attraction. Um, Lauren Schuler was the producer on that. And she had me in right away. She said, Bill, remember all those machines you used to build? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I signed up right away. It was only like a $25 million film, you know, mm -hmm. but all the machines. And, and then they got uh, Michael Lantieri right yeah. away, who, you know, is Spielberg's right-hand man. And I know Michael from Flintstones and Nothing But Trouble. And I've known Michael socially, you know, around the lot at Universal when he's working for Amblin. And uh, he was so, oh, I'm so happy to see you here, Bill. I wanted so, you know, we collaborated. You know, how much fun is that? All It's all yeah. these weird designs, you know. So that, of course, was the, the joy in that film for sure. Awesome. Now, one, and you mentioned it earlier, which still uh, gets a lot of um, replay uh, artistically and filmically, uh, Hocus Pocus. Oh, yeah. Right down to exhibits and museums and things like that. Uh, that movie just seems to be... Um, ever eternal. It's never going away. <laughs> yep. It gets bigger every year. That's for sure. Actually, Ralph Winters just called me, the new producer, although he produced the first one, just called me this morning early. He's now on it and uh, talked to me a little bit. We're having lunch next week to talk mm -hmm. about it, and I'm going to send him a bunch of stuff I have to jumpstart everything. And that was fun talking to Ralph this morning. Um, yeah, I know. I'm one of the great pleasures of my life. One of the best experiences of my life was working on Hocus Pocus. I'm a super Halloween fan. You know, if you mm -hmm. can see what I'm sitting in here, I have a whole bunch of horror stuff. And, <laughs> you know, Halloween's, you know, I, I hate all the other holidays, but I, I, love, <laughs> I, I love Halloween. So, you know, to have Halloween for four or five months while we're filming, go to Salem we were in Salem. I was in sit back and forth many times scouting locations and to be, we, but we actually got back there to shoot for a week and a half, right on the 300th year anniversary of the, of the, uh, you know, deaths of these poor women and the wow. one, one man. So it was the whole place is like a big Halloween party, you know? I mean, the cop cars have witches on the side of them. It's <laughs> uh, they've really embraced this. And, um, I go to a lot of horror cons, you know, Monster Paloozas and Midsummer Screams. And I've been on panels with Sarah Jessica and Kathy mm -hmm. Najimi and David Kirshner, the producer. And mm -hmm. everybody wants to talk about Hocus Pocus. You know, Robocop, Total Recall, and Hocus Pocus. Out of all the films that I've done, uh, everybody wants to talk about Hocus Pocus. Me too, by the way. It's the, mm -hmm. I, I have the book here. I have a book, and I one of the, the only book left. In fact, they scanned it last year for the new movie. And, you know, I'm involved in a lot of horror cons and whatnot. So I, I love it. I, I you know, I talk to, uh, 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 I talked to everybody that, uh, uh, you know, worked on it, you know, and just going to work every day at Disney, we're on the big stage, you know, and you walk on and there was, you know, Thora Birch told me, she was only, uh, we're talking uh, last year at some con where we're at all talking hocus pocus. And she said, you know, Bill, I was only 10. You know, and she used to walk on that stage and you walked up, a, you know, walk through some spooky gates off a road. You walked up a road and there's this house in a forest with a water wheel and a stream and a, all the trees and the wind was blowing. It was it was pretty cool. And here, here, Narita lit the set so amazingly. And, wow. you know, Mary votes costumes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I've said to her, I try to bring her up. She doesn't really go to these cons. She still works all the time. 
if Mary had a nickel for every costume I see at Halloween, you know, made from her wonderful designs, she'd, you know, she'd be a billionaire. So no, it was a happy set. It was one of those sets. I know a lot of people say that about some sets, but this was indeed a happy set. And, you know, Kenny Ortega, just, I just done newsies for him. So I was like pestering him day in and day out. I had the script before he did. Uh, Disney gave me the mm-hmm. script because they knew I liked Halloween and I'd done, I'd done uh, big business with Bet and Lily Tomlin there earlier. And mm-hmm. so Bet's company, All Girl Productions with Bonnie Bruckheimer, I was a known quantity to them. They liked me. And so they gave me the script and I thought, oh my God, this is it. I've got to do this picture. I have got to do a Halloween picture. And I knew right away, I said, this is going to run on be screened and run on TV for the rest of this. It was like the wizard of Oz <laughs> or it's a wonderful life every Christmas. I knew it and it almost didn't, but then it started mm-hmm. and it did. So I'm very, yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy with the legs that that film had. Now you did mention newsies and, yeah. uh, which is another stunningly designed film. Uh, n- now didn't your niece quickly appear in both that and Hocus Pocus? Yeah. You must've seen, I, it was so good. Yeah, we kept, you know, uh, we put both my nephew and my niece in uh, Outbreak. They were both had the uh, oh, cool. the horrible disease. They're in the hospital. <laughs> and then we put uh, her as a street urchin. She's bouncing a ball up in the hallways when all the kids run run by Anne Margaret's uh, play. And then she's marching with all the kids with their signs. And then we put her as trick-or-treater. My sister saved all this money, put my nephew through Princeton, and, and Jesse went through Harvard. They're all pretty credentialed uh, bigwigs in their each each of their professions so but it was fun to be able to put my you know I my I, I didn't have a kid yet in those days so I have one kid now but it was fun to stick them in there and see them they're like I've often thought all films that when you work on films they're always really home movies you know you remember exactly where you were what you were doing when you see the film and now I can no it's just fun cool now, another film that uh, kind of dovetails with that almost Halloween-y thing, uh, not nearly as popular with audiences or critics as Hocus Pocus, but one of my favorite design films ever, uh, Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, in a way, how Freddy Krueger was referred to as the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. Uh, for me, Nothing But Trouble almost looks and feels like the Brundlefly gene splice DNA of like Edmund Gorey, Gahan Wilson, and Charles Adams carried to term and given birth through the womb of William Sandell. Welcome to supper. How about a nice Hawaiian punch? You know, there's nothing better at the end of a long day on the road than a nice warm glass of Hawaiian punch. Here's to good friends. Does he treat all traffic violators this graciously? Only the ones he takes a special interest in, like bankers. Ants on a log, ma'am? Uh... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love one. Well, uh, folks, <clears throat> I'd like to introduce my granddaughter, Eldona. She's single and the best Class A mechanic in five states. It's adorable, Judge. She'd make an ideal wife, too. Genuine wage earner and struck dumb at birth by a thunderclap. My kind of woman. 
you know, it's just well, you know, all of these. <laughs> I tell you, by the way, you want to you want to have a hot hot tidbit here? This is fun. Nobody know, nobody knows this but me. Um, at least I haven't seen it on any sites. I got a call from the director, a director that's just finishing up doing the behind the scenes uh, Dune, the David Lynch Dune mm-hmm. stuff that's going to go into the like a uh, Blu-ray type re-release. Okay. He's about to start. We're going to talk next week. He's about to start. I just I just scanned a bunch of stuff for him. He's going to do. A, there's going to be a re-release of Nothing But Trouble. Really, Blu-ray with a behind-the-scenes things. He's he's got Dan, and he's got me, of course. And uh, they're trying to get Chevy, you know. And uh, Dan said, "Oh, you got to get Chevy." So I thought that was pretty exciting. I, That's I was, very cool. Yeah, I was in the desert last week, and then my son called me and said, you know, this guy keeps calling. He keeps getting me, but he really wants you. My son's in the business. And uh, I call him. I said, oh, my God, this is the most exciting news of all time. I'm so excited because, you know, I'm I'm a not only am I a big fan of the movie, I'm a big fan of Dan. And I just mm-hmm. I just love to see I know, you know, I have that poster up in my in my loft <laughs> and people that know that movie love that movie. I or love that movie, it. man. There's a lot of people that hate it. But most yeah, yeah. people I run into, they say, oh, my God. I didn't know anybody else knew that movie but me. Uh-huh. I, I said, not only do I know it, I worked on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Very cool. And uh, nothing but trouble was, yeah, it's really the, through the, it's that, believe me, that's how Dan thinks. That whole movie. <laughs> I, I, I met him. I don't know who introduced us, but we clicked right away. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, my, it's uh, funny, I, I have a trailer out in Bombay Beach by the Salton Sea, and his daughter Daniela, she professionally she sings as Vera Sola, uh, bought a trailer near me. You know, there's kind of an arts movement out there where we're buying all these properties and doing kind of art installations. Some mm-hmm. pretty heavy hitters around the country are out there: Randy Palumbo and Kenny Scharf, and you know a lot of stuff like that. I meet her out there in the bar. I go, "Hey, you're Dan's daughter." I said, "I used to hold you." When you were a little baby, she goes, who are you? I go, Bill, I work for you. Oh, she goes, oh, my God, my dad talks about you all the time. <laughs> How cool. She says, you know what? I still have all the rubber toys from the dungeon in my garage. We go on. <laughs> That's great. So, she, he, you know, Dan is like the people often ask me who are the coolest people, you know, you ever met business wise, I suppose. I say, well, mm-hmm. it's it's Dan Aykroyd. I mean, Wolfgang nice. Peterson's cool. And I've met a lot of cool people. But, man. Dan is just, and he's so cool. He's so funny. Mm-hmm. He's so cool and smart and interesting. And he thinks about stuff like I, he's all into ghosts and UFOs, and mm-hmm. weird stuff like me. And I, I we, we, you know, he would say, what do you think we should do here? And I'd go, well, my grandfather used to take me to this restaurant that where the train brought our food out. And we're like looking at each other. We go, why don't we do it in the dining room table? Yeah, you know, so boom, I had to go to the studio and ask for another $40,000 and they gave it to me. You know, it's like, well, I wonder if we did this. Yeah, let's do, you know, we just, Oh, that's awesome. We just kept doing stuff. So he was so much fun to work on that movie. Nobody went to see it. I think I read somewhere years ago, it had the worst per screen average for a film of any, uh, you know, big studio release. It was a $45 million Mm -hmm. film. You know, at the time, wow. with a lot of heavy hitters in it too. Mm-hmm. You know, that'd be a hundred million now, right? 
Mm. And no one went to see. I think it had eight hundred dollar per screen average and like fifteen hundred screen release or something like that. <laughs> so that's why I'm so excited that they're gonna re-release it, you know. And I think they're changing the aspect ratio, getting it back correctly, and they're doing a few little things. No extra oh, cool. no extra scenes, but it'll be fun. Yeah, it'd be that'd be awesome. And a lot of people don't realize that was uh, that movie had uh, one of the earliest filmic appearances of Tupac Shakur and uh, and Humpty. Shocked, yeah. Humpty. Oh yeah. my God, that was amazing <laughs> when they came there. That they were there for a day and a half mm-hmm. playing that song. And Dan was Kevin. <laughs> everybody else was tearing their hair out about the fiftieth take of you know all the bits and pieces and stuff. But I mean. Uh-huh. That's Dan, and that set. Well, those sets were awesome, man. That was the most fun wow. of all time, man. We built the biggest sets over there at Warner's, and then a huge set out at the Warner Ranch, out in the hills outside LA, with mm-hmm. moats and drawbridges and ninety-foot house and junkyards, and greater teens and Stonehenge built out of old Cadillacs, and oh my god, it was so cool. It was. Just- I guarantee you. After some people listen to this, they're going to run out and they're going to check out Nothing But Trouble when they didn't see it before. I promise you that. Hey, it's got, you know, really at the time, and I've said this to, you know, in print before when people ask me, I said, because, you know, the studio called me in all the time. You've got to stop it, Bill. You've got to stop it. But they never did stop me. I said, I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. Mm -hmm. Dan wanted this. We budgeted it. We're going to keep building. And, you know, oh, you're our little picture, Bill. You're our little picture. And I'm like, they had uh, Bonfire of the Vanities going in New York. I've said, and I've seen it parroted back to me in print, my own line, that I, I I thought maybe perhaps the Eye of Mordor was looking towards New York, and that was a real trouble picture for mm-hmm. Warners. So maybe yeah. they took the eye off the ball with uh, our, our little $45 million picture. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I told them, I said, look, you got Demi Moore. She just just did Ghost, taught off a Ghost. You've got a, blue, a genuine blues brother who wrote the – Blues Brothers script and wrote Ghostbusters, you know, in it. You've got Chevy Chase, who was their big star at the time. He was making six million dollars yeah. a picture, and you got John Candy, who everybody loves. John Candy. Mm-hmm. I said, this is in a little picture to me. This is a this is a big picture to me. By the way, that got back to Dan. That conversation somehow that bonded us forever. When he cool, did you really tell them that? I said, yeah. They fucking call me in. Oops, sorry about that. They call me. Yeah, no, okay. They call me in. You know, once a week. Bill, stop uh-huh. the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. And I'm like, what bleeding? We're making a film here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no bleeding. Yeah. They they, they gave me the same line. They uh, they gave me the same line that, that I I got actually actually from another Warner's. I worked a lot at Warner's on some pretty big pictures. Poseidon, mm-hmm. Outbreak, uh, Perfect Storm. Um, got Glimmer Man with Steven Seagal. I've worked mm-hmm. at Warner's a lot, and they kind of know me, and they know I'm a pretty good guy and stay on budget. But, you know, they gave me that same line. They, they tried to have me tell Wolfgang something once, but the line is, it's like a classic. It's like, would you tell, and this is, they said this about Dan, too. They said, oh, you know, do you really need this, Bill? Do you, do you know, I said, yeah, yeah, we budgeted for it, and we need it. They said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, would you, why don't you go talk to Dan and ask him if he needs us? And I'm like, I'm not talking to Dan about anything like that. You know, he thinks he's getting that and I'm going to make it. They said, this is the classic line. They said, yeah, but he knows you and he he trusts you. I said, about any director, but in particular about Dan, I said, you know why he likes me? 
because I don't go and tell him stuff like this. Right. And why he trusts me. Yeah. yeah I yeah. said, you're all, I see many produce, by the way, the head of the studio, the heads of production the, and various baby suits there. I said, you're all producers. Why don't you go tell him? I said, I'll be quite frank with you. If Dan tells me to paint that mountain, that big famous Warner's mountain, I gestured at mm-hmm. you know, paint that mountain purple, I'm starting tomorrow, you know? And uh, it's just sort of the way it is. You know, they all, they just threw up their hands like, oh God, you know, but I, mm-hmm. but they kept hiring me. They kept, you know, cause they have to okay you the studios. If director can want, right. but if there's some big issue, they, they make kind of a stink. So whatever, I kept working at Warner's. So. Mm. And how about, uh, Rennie Harlan and Deep Blue Sea. That was that was something else. They had a uh, a production designer on the film. Actually, my I was trying to get away. I, every year, I take a two week trip to South America or Central America with my son. It was he was young, so we take a up the Amazon or up a mountain or Machu Picchu. Nice. Where you know, we tried to get away to the jungle, the two of us in between pictures. So I was slated to go, and I get this call from Warner's saying. Uh, they'd like you to come over to the uh, executive office and talk to everybody tomorrow. There's a problem with the picture they're doing. I'm like, holy Jesus. I, so I go over there and there's all the heavy hitters there at Warner's. And they go, Bill, we're having a problem with the production designer on Rennie's picture. And uh, who sounds like a very nice guy. I said, he, Rennie's lost confidence in him. And, and we want you to go down there and, uh, Fire everybody you want and do it. It's all your own crew, which, by the way, it was all my construction crew, painters. Mm-hmm. Duncan Henderson was the producer, who was an old friend. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, uh, I said, Well, you know, I got to, you know, can we, can I go down in two weeks? I got to leave tomorrow mm. morning. <laughs> yeah. They said, Bill, they looked at me, it was just out of the Godfather, because I'm sitting in this chair in front of this huge desk with two guys flanking. I won't name names but the biggest of the biggest people there at Warner's. And they go, the guy goes, <laughs> Bill, Warner's would consider this a great favor if you go down <laughs> and take over that picture. And mm-hmm. I go, okay, because what are you going to do? Never work at Warner's yeah. again? So sure enough, car came and got me. It took me across the border right away. So, you know, what had happened is the guy had gone home to London and uh, uh, he kept telling people the picture could never be done. And you just, you don't tell people that. He said, I won't, I can't be ready. And Rennie was like, I knew Rennie socially. We used to drink beer down on the beach, although he was surprised to see me down there. But, um, and Venice when he was young. So I went down there and uh, I said, <laughs> I'm not, fi- well, I've fired some people, but got some more people and we got the picture done. It was a big picture. That was a big mm-hmm. popcorn summer movie. You know, it saved, I think it saved Rennie's career really. Hmm. And even he sort of, you know, alluded to that. We had a, a cast and crew screening at Warner's. And he said, you know, I want to thank everybody. That's, that's a lot for him to say, you know. He's like a big, crazy Viking, <laughs> you know, cases of vodka all over his desk and everything, you know. But, yeah, that was that was exciting filmmaking down there. So Awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I worked down well. Then, I, you know, I, I like that tank down there. I, hmm. That was kind of exciting. Where you know you live on the beach when you're down there. You, they rent your house, and you know well, you can never live on the beach up here in California. It's too expensive. So, but you have mm-hmm. right there on the beach in a nice big house. So it's pretty cool. 
Enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. We'll need an arrest subject. Mr. Kenny. Yes, sir. Would you come up and give us a hand, please? Yes, sir. Mr. Kenny, use your gun in a threatening manner. Point it at Ed 209. Yes, sir. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. You now have 15 seconds to comply. You are in direct violation of Penal Code 113, Section 9. You now have 5 seconds to out of the case and stick it up your nose. Don't worry, it's self-guiding. Just shove real hard. When you hear the crunch, you're there. Just pull it out. Be careful. It's my head too. Now this is the plan. Get your ass to Mars. Then go to the Hilton and flash that Brubaker ID at the desk. That's all there's to it. Just do what I tell you. And we can nail that son of a bitch who fucked you and me. I'm counting on you, buddy. Don't let me down. Now, the final section, I guess the stuff that people ask you about all the time. Those creative collaborations with uh, Paul Verhoeven and Wolfgang Peterson. I guess starting with Verhoeven on Robocop and Total Recall. Um, how did you two guys come, come together? I knew... Uh... John Davidson, who was the producer of uh, RoboCop. Mm -hmm. And I knew him from Roger Corman days. Uh, I did okay. uh, Piranha for Joe Dante, and, and uh, John was the producer. He actually used to be the head of production for New World Pictures. Okay. So, so he called me to do RoboCop, which I didn't want to do because oh, they, 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 well, they weren't, first of all, I didn't like the script that much. I, mm. I, I was, I had Robotech, I'm a big comic book collector. I had all this mm -hmm. Robo stuff already. And uh, they weren't paying me as much money as I was making. And it was a non-union picture. And it was okay. going to Texas. 
and I was in the union. And um, at any rate, I John says he actually gave me a point in the picture. I still get residual checks from that. Wow. And uh, yeah, and the only picture I've ever been offered that uh, you know below the line guy like me. So um, I uh, he got me on, and he had Rob already working on the suit, but he didn't have a director. Mm-hmm. So I was on before uh, Paul and he, you know, uh, John was saying, I'm, you know, I'm waiting for this director, this Dutch director. And I'm like, oh, come on, John, you know, every director in town, just hire one of them and let's go do this movie. I was anxious to get it done and, and done. So pretty soon here comes Paul and he has a long story he tells about how he finally got on the show. But so here's Paul and he and we fought from the moment we met, we fought. He hated American crews. He hated America. He thought we were all provincial boobs. <laughs> uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Finally, you know, he saw how amazing our sets were and how we worked, and he got used to it. Brought Yost, his uh, German cameraman. And uh, we got to be good friends. He'd come over to my house all the time. So at the end of the show, you know, he realized oh, this is, this is what I get. I'm not this auteur from Europe having to do it all myself. There are other talented people that will help me with my vision, which is how I look at the relationship with the director. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I was at uh, Carolco, no, not Carolco, Orion. And we saw the, uh, I saw a rough cut, pretty finished, of RoboCop. I was in shock. I, I really had no idea what we'd made. Wow. I just didn't know it. It was, you know, it was so hectic working down there. You know, John got us all the money we could get, which was he he worked very hard giving us, meaning the art department, some money. But it was hot in Dallas. We were building sets all over Dallas, building sets in Pittsburgh, uh, building set, blowing things up all over town. We're on the news every night blowing. Oh, my God. Every night. And it was wearying. And Paul spent the rest of the time screaming. I mean, Rob wouldn't talk to him because he was uh, I was in all the meetings about Robo and Paul and and, you know, people. He's a pretty could be a pretty uh, noisy guy, Paul Verhoeven. But the proof of the pudding is, is he made an amazing picture. And I walked out that screening room and I said, oh, my God, I cannot believe it. That's how clueless I was. I had no idea that the picture was going to look like that. And I. I people ask me about the movie all the time and I say, well, we, we sweated our butts off in Dallas all summer. And then we went to Pittsburgh in the winter and froze our butts off in November. <laughs> and, uh, but then, you know, then Paul came over, he, you know, I have, I had a horse ranch and he'd be riding horses. And one day he comes to my house and he goes, you know, by the way, we all swore John Davidson, the producer, John, I think he's quoted in some videos. The producer said, I almost got out of the film business after RoboCop. I never <laughs> wanted to do another film again. A lot of people felt that way. I know Rob did. And, and then he comes over and he says, you know, I got this script. Would you ever, and I just had a baby, you know, and I, he goes, would you ever want to go to Mexico for a year and do this movie about Mars? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right after my, you had a baby. oh my God, my wife looks at me and I'm looking at Paul. He says, here, read this. Just tell me what you think. Take so how long course. do you plan to stay on Mars? Two weeks. Look at that shit. What the hell's this? The Martians love Coato. They think he's fucking George Washington. Kill the bastard. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. Have you brought any fruits or vegetables onto the planet? 
two weeks. Excuse me? Two weeks. Two weeks. It's not just graffiti. The rebels took over the refinery last night. No turbidium is going out. And it gets worse. The rebels also... I read it. Sure enough, he got Rob to go. He got me to go. Mm -hmm. I got Bobby Gould, my decorator, to mm -hmm. go. And he got us all together again. And we all went down and we made Total Recall. And we built, uh, I mean, by that time, we were good friends. Fred, uh, uh, Paul trusted us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we had 10 stages down there. We just started building and we never stopped. I brought my Hollywood crew. I brought about 30 people down, foreman and plaster staff guys and we hired another 300 down there mm. and uh, of uh you know groups of uh you know they have a union you know grupos you know we hired a lot of people down there and we just started building and drawing and i brought all my set designers down hired some james bond uh, set designers that were left over bond had just shot mm. there and uh we never stopped we in fact a couple of departments were running 24 hours a day and we never stopped for seven days a week for for months, Bill, you know, I would build like these huge sets bigger than a, I mean, like the Hilton on Mars. Mm. People think we shot that in a real Hilton. No, I built that on stage. Mm. And then Paul would shoot it. The second unit would come in, shoot it. The effects guys would come in blow some stuff up. I'd bulldoze it and start building another gigantic set. Oh, it, just wow. it just never, it just never ended. And this went on on all state, all stages we had three different sets on them during the course of months and months of filming. It was, I came home from that movie. That was something, by the way, I've read, I didn't realize this at the time. It was the most expensive film made that year. Wow. I didn't six, know that either. A little over $60 million. And by the way, that's in Mexico, you know, mm. so they were a lot on fringes and salaries, right. and whatnot. But, um, uh, I came back from that. And I knew I could do any movie in the world. <laughs> I said, nah, I, I've seen, the good, bad, the ugly, man. I, I if I can, li I live through this one. I can live through anything. Wow. So, and it was great. And I, I knew that that picture was an important, great picture. Paul and I talked about it a lot, and uh, we knew it was going to be cool. I mean, Arnold's. Look at Arnold. He's, a, you know, he was at the top of his game. Mm -hmm. You know, firing on all cylinders, man. He was doing his whole Arnold thing. Paul was great. Yost, Yost was back shooting it. You know, and. Uh, I had Bobby, my decorator, and we had my I had my construction crew. They're the only we were the only crew that could have pulled that off down there. That's for damn sure. Wow. because um, it was that's that's big time building on a big time scale. You gotta really uh -huh. think about that to build that quick and that fast and not have anybody hurt, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we were building big, big stuff and people were, you know high up in the ceilings you know walking in you know it's a, like a real you're building a real building on stage mm -hmm. and it has to not like collapse and hurt somebody so that was that was uh, exciting times down there in mexico city i really actually 
in retrospect, I really enjoyed it. Certainly enjoyed walking in the parks in Mexico and meeting people down there. What a what a fun time that was. It just the work was grueling, man. Earthquakes were happening. <laughs> Uh, you know, on my oh my god, there's a lot that went on down there. But the proof of the pudding is, I saw a nice clean print uh, at some uh, movie thing about two years ago, and oh my god, that picture looks good, and it still holds up. Yeah, they just released it on a 4K Blu-ray, and and it still looks incredible. It really does. Yeah, uh, I got to get that. Yeah, yeah it, it still looks incredible, and the set still makes sense. And mm-hmm. and just looking at it from an artistic standpoint, the set still look you know, appropriate. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm very proud of that movie. Total Recall. I'm very proud of that movie. Very cool. Now you did four, if I'm not mistaken, four movies with Wolfgang Peterson, uh, Outbreak, yeah. Air Force One, Perfect Storm and Poseidon. So yeah. how did you guys hook up? Like you seem to be hooking up with all of the, all of these like European um, um, artists who come to the United States and make all of well, these yeah, big you know, epic films. Yeah. People, people have, I got asked that question about 10 years ago or five years, like, how come you only work for, uh, how come you never work for an American director? And I said, I don't know what you mean. And then I started like, I worked for John Woo. I worked for Wolfgang. I worked for Paul. I, on, uh, on a Nick Cage movie, the director was Australian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started to think, holy crap, they're right. Hmm. I never really thought of them as <laughs> Peter uh, Weir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter Weir. Yeah, it's like maybe I it is, but you know, I think that's American. Uh, I think that's producer. It's not. It's. Um, I don't find them. It, the film community here finds people. I know for Paul, John was interested in having for uh, RoboCop a, a a European sensibility in shooting an American type film. And I think that's a that's an interesting thing is they don't want the same old uh, American director. I hate to say this if American director friends hear this because everybody yeah. can do any kind of movie. But I think that sometimes the thinking is we don't want the same old uh, uh, tropes that we've all been raised with as yeah, growing up. One of the things that surprised everybody about RoboCop was it's sort of off-center iconoclastic satire. Yeah. I don't think anybody expected that. And that's extremely that I, I can't imagine an American action director would have no brought that to the yeah no he wouldn't have plus Paul uh, Paul uh, you know he likes his violence you know and mm-hmm. but you're right I mean I think they look at things as skewed now I mean uh, that segues into what I wanted to say about meeting Wolfgang because anybody in the film business can shoot any kind of film you know if you I, some of the greatest directors shot westerns and they shot science fiction and they shot yeah romantic comedies and so if you you can do that i I met i don't know how i met wolfgang maybe gershus hooked me up um uh when i met him uh he was sort of laying on a couch up in the in the office there at warner's and he he asked me uh because i'd done like flintstones and saint elmo's fire and Mm -hmm. uh you know, all the science fiction stuff and uh, hocus pocus. And he said, you know, this has got to be based in reality, Bill, you know, this outbreak. Mm-hmm. Do you think you can really do reality? And I'm thinking to myself, holy moly, that's so easy compared to dreaming up the future or dreaming up what a cartoon's supposed to look like. It would be a, a break to be able to design reality where mm-hmm. I can actually find existing images to help me. <laughs> but I didn't say that. 
because that's kind of like, oh, well, you just think this is going to be written. No, I didn't say that. I said, well, of course, I know I can do this, you know. And, you know, it's true. If you're an art director, you're supposed to be able to, you know, be building a volcano one day and a boat the next and a submarine the next. And I mean, that that's the fun part of designing and working in an art department in the motion picture business. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of accredited, I had two or three art directors and set designers that had their masters in architecture, but they preferred to work in the film business instead of mm-hmm. drawing condos and wiring diagrams for the rest of their life and some mm-hmm. outside job because, and you don't have to worry about load bearing walls and getting <laughs> zoning permits and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, he hired me and it turned into really a wonderful relationship. You know, I, I really love Wolfgang. He taught me so much. He's the real deal. He's like a real director. He And he loves shooting at studios and he loves shooting on sets. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you're talking my life. He, he does it incredibly damn well. I mean, for God's sake, uh, you know, Das Boot. And, yeah. and, and even something like Enemy Mine, for God's yeah. sake. It's yeah. just a, visually stunning to be filmed, you know, indoors for all intents and purposes he he um you know he's a guy like one day he saw me lingering i think uh, and by the way he attracts interesting uh, people too he i did two films with john seal and two films with michael Bauhaus, both mm-hmm. cinematographers at the top of their game and uh which both guys are the you know it's like the old saw about the bigger they are the nicer they are they're both the nicest most genuine fun guys you could ever be around you know which is uh-huh. it's just so true you know and, uh, you know, Wolfgang, I'm always, I spent my whole life sort of following directors around with uh, blueprints under my arm or questions <laughs> or, can you look at this picture again? And like, yeah, he drives him nuts, you know, because he sees me lurking, waiting for a moment. <laughs> I remember one day out in the middle between all the stages, all the stages were filled with sets for him. Every damn stage at Warner's was filled. He loves all that stuff with mm-hmm. sets. And he says, oh, Bill, he's like in his German way, he says, Bill, are you waiting for me? I said, well, I wanted to ask you about this question, you know, because the studio asked me to ask Wolfgang. But I'm, about mm-hmm. to, I'm about to spend a million dollars on a set. So they mm-hmm. want to know that this is really what we need, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember, always remember, you told me something so interesting. And I said, well, I want to ask you again. Do you, he said, well, this is, you, we talked about this, right? I said, yeah, I just want to make sure. He says, Bill, he says, do you like it? I said, yes, I love it. He says, well, you're the production designer. This, in this case, John Seal was standing there. John's the cinematographer and I'm the director. If you like it, you go build it. I said, okay, Wolfgang. But, you know, you can only do that with a real director that isn't going to kill you later if something goes mm-hmm. wrong and they say, I never told him to build the, right, right. that volcano. I distinctly said I wanted <laughs> a mud pot, not a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, that was the kind of relationship, you know, and it was fun working for Air, Air Force One. It was fun. And he tracks a lot of interesting people, mm. you know, and I, you know, I did a lot of water pictures, you know, that all those sets were underwater, mm. you know, and deep blue sea and perfect storm underwater. And, oh, my God, everybody's in the water. It's a, it's a different type of building, too. You have to <laughs> Poseidon, for God's sake. Uh, yeah. oh, oh, my God, upside down and backwards and. I had to keep models on. These are all really intelligent people. John was shooting that and Wolfgang, first assistants. You know, they're all really bright people at that level of filmmaking. And everybody was getting confused. I finally had to keep two models of the ship, one upside down and one right side <laughs> up. Because people were shooting in sets that are upside down. By the way, these are six-story sets, all mm-hmm. real. And they're on fire, dripping water, 
the people are running up and down these corridors and falling off things. Six, it was a six-story set on stage. I, I started building at the bottom of the tank that I dug for Perfect Storm. Mm-hmm. You know, so these were big, tall sets, and it's very confusing. It's like a, a like an Escher print. You know, you're mm. you're upside down, and somebody would say, "Okay, he runs down that door, and he opens up that upside down door, right?" So we say, "No, you're supposed to go left." Oh, you're supposed to go, and you know, I'm thinking, who the hell knows Wolfgang? When this movie's all cut together, it's not going to be about uh that but he's german you know he wants to know exactly where everybody's going so i had to get mm-hmm. models all around everybody so he now he can change it but he has to like all directors they want to know exactly how it's really supposed to be mm-hmm. and then they then they and they alone have the option of modifying it and i've noticed that with a lot of directors but they got to know the reality of it and then the thing then they can say oh we don't need that i don't care about that let's go that way or something like that so mm-hmm. Well, especially no, for something like Poseidon. I mean, that like continuity had to be a bitch on that, you know? Unbelievable. I mean, I, I have a picture. I, I went, I used to lecture at USC to a general film class of a couple hundred people. They'd bring them over, film students, uh, over to Universal. And they had a big hall there. And, mm-hmm. you know, the instructor would have a cinematographer in, a costume designer in, a me in, a screenwriter in. And, uh, you know, I brought some uh, behind-the-scenes stuff I shot with my little Sony Handycam of like mm-hmm. some scenes from Perfect Storm, and you, you, I'm up in the I'm up in the catwalks shooting this the ship in the middle of this hundred by hundred foot tank with backings, and and you see Alan, uh, who was our uh, first assistant, that's like voice of God, Mike. You know, it's like <laughs> chew the wet down. So George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, et al get all hosed down on the ship, big water, fire hoses, cue the boat, the boat starts rocking, cue the wave machine, waves start rocking, cue the lightning, cue the rain, cue the thunder, you know, it's like, like <laughs> 10 things. And then you hear Wolfgang, and there's like 10 monitors in my shot down there, everybody huddled around. And then you hear Wolfgang go, action. And then, <laughs> and then the ship's rocking and Clooney's getting blown off and, Everybody's like these kids in the class were like their mouths were agape because they're shooting little things on their little teeny tiny whatevers, you know. Uh-huh. And then, and then there's cut, 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 you know, Alan. And then the, you hear all the ritters going, everything <laughs> winds down. Then you hear Wolfgang's voice down there. That was pretty good. We're gonna go again. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is this is like what real filmmaking is like. And that's not going to be like that anymore. It's all green screen. Yeah. It's all, you know, yeah. no one's ever going to shoot stuff like that again, where a real boat is there with real rain, with real backings that simulating storm with real guys falling off a real boat into 20 foot deep water, you know, with emergency divers underwater and dinghies uh-huh. floating in case something happens. And, you know, when you see a spectacle like that, you know, you go like, oh, my God, it's so cool. It is so freaking cool and to see stuff Mm -hmm. like that i love all that i love all that stuff and that's what's great about wolfgang he loves walking onto a set his set Uh ah this is my set i'm like there it is wolfgang make your movie you know i'm like ah Mm -hmm. i love that this is your arena (laughs) it really is he loves arriving in his car he walks in there and goes over the storyboards and huddles for a cup of coffee and then it's time to shoot a movie close those doors 
big stage doors, doors close and there he is in heaven, you know. It was a lot of fun working for Wolfgang. I have the utmost respect for him. I, I really love the guy. I'd do anything for Wolfgang, too. He's just a super, super guy. <laughs> so what made you decide, okay, you know, I've I've done this, now it's time to, to move on. I mean, like some people may... Uh, uh, you know, be an architect or or or, or build ships or or, or or whatever, and then they decide, okay, I I think I want to teach now, you know, and they decide that it's time to move on to another another life phase. What made you decide that? Uh, okay, I'm done with film. Now I want to get back into the more artistic stuff. Well, you know, the the business has changed. I did a couple at the very end of my career. Hotel for Dogs was like the last feature film I made mm -hmm. and some friends at Warner's called me. I did a couple of pilots for Warner's one lasted a long time. Uh, Longmire was kind of a yeah, yeah. contemporary cool. Western. I did the pilot for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, cause I love Santa Fe and I did another pilot that wasn't picked up. Chris Chulak was the director on both and he was a really cool guy, but I realized this move, this, I didn't want to leave for one thing. I don't like to travel that much. I don't want to go on location. Lots of movies were on location. And the business has changed, you know, I, 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 you know, and I had a lot of friends, I had a lot of friends that died or have that big scar down their chest with heart attack. Mm. I mean, I was relatively young. I retired wow. like 62, 63, four or something like that. I said, wow. I, I don't want to die in the saddle. You know, I want to go do some fun things, you know, and the yeah. pressure, the pressure is immense on these. I get asked to do pictures a lot still. All the time, actually. <laughs> I go, no, I'm really retired. <laughs> I, I told David Gersh, I told the agency, I said, look, you know, and they finally quit calling. But I, mm -hmm. you know, I knew other people. So, you know, people send me scripts. I do breakdowns of them just to mm -hmm. know, keep my hand in the business. And, you know, I make my little videos. I, I funded some videos for local filmmakers here that are doing something kind of like a quasi-executive produce, so to speak. Uh -huh. And... um just because, but fun things where there's no pressure. I just don't want. Yeah. I don't want the pressure. I hear you. It really takes its toll on you. You know, you you see all those funny memes on, on uh, Facebook sites like Crew Stories. You know, where everybody's talking about yeah. or that, and and they they always do a funny one where they show an old guy and they go, yeah. I don't know how the meme runs, but it's like, oh, there's no pressure. And my, I'm only, you know, like they're only 27. 20 something years old, yeah. Yeah, you know, the guy looks like he's. They look like Moses. They, yeah, look like Moses, you know, because it eats you up inside. It really does. Yeah. You know, for all the good times, there's, you know, like somebody, somebody, I've seen people ask this and I've certainly read about, you know, people walking onto a movie stage and saying, look at all these guys standing around. Oh, I don't even need all these guys. <laughs> but, you know, those are the times like, when when there's a change you know camera change or a new a new deal where everybody moves you see all these people run mm -hmm. and do something so quick and amazing and then they go back and stand there and, and it's, but it, you, you need this absolute moments of terror in the mm -hmm. middle of standing around you know mm -hmm. I, I think that up and down up and down the flip side is it keeps you young and motivated in a thing. I, I look much younger than I am. You know, I, mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. think I'm in my fifties. I go, no, I'm in late sixties, dude. You mm -hmm. know, like it can work that way, but who knows what my insides are like, you know? <laughs> yeah. can, uh -huh. can, well, that's the part that keeps you young, the insides. Yeah. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was kind of funny because I mean, looking at your work and, and uh, of course chatting with you, there's definitely a, uh, a youthful exuberance that, you know, kind of still feels like the, well, you know, I, I work, I do the podcast, Combat Radio podcast with Ethan Deadmire, and 
his show. We do that every couple of weeks I'm on. He always gets a few producers, Michael Lang, mm-hmm. who's directed a lot of stuff. Or he gets a lot oh. of writers. Nick Meyer came on, who's a friend of the show. And we raise money for charity on the show, but we talk war stories for two hours. And these are all writers, you know, at the top of their game, producers. Uh, you know, Dan Truly's producing Blue Bloods right now, and he's a writer mm-hmm. of some note, too. And, you know, you got to be, you got to be, you got to be up on your on your game to talk with these guys because for every story I can tell, they can tell me one, you know, so you, you can't BS around, you can't say stuff. But I, I think the one thing that I do see, and people have commented on that, Michael said, God, you see that bill, Bill still in bill. You ought to do a movie again. They're all, <laughs> they're all enthusiastic about the business. They're not. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a hallmark. you got to be, because it's tough to get up at make call in the morning and work late hours and, you know, you go into Friday night, so your Saturday's ruined, and you got an early call on Monday, so basically Sunday's ruined. And you know, there's a lot going on there. And they have people got. Fa- I had, I was divorced and just had a little one kid. I families that have a lot of people in mm. them. I just can't imagine. You know, people ask me. They used to ask me all the time. This is uh, set designers, like in in my art department. I might have seven or eight of them, and I got uh, two or three art directors and a supervising art director, and then me. So all these set designers, they want to be art directors and they really want to be me, you know, production mm-hmm. designer. And mm-hmm. so like I, I've had two or three times guys have asked me this. They go, you know, what, what, what would it take to be a production designer? You know, and I said, you know, they're very talented people. Right. And I go, well, for one thing, you're out of work a lot, at least if you're like mm-hmm. me, because I look for I, I'll sit out of work waiting for for a, a movie you know, that I like, not the one that goes to Budapest, but one that stays in town and is on a studio so we can build some lots. Maybe there's a month of shooting in the middle of Colorado, but basically you're anchored to the studio. That's what I look for. And you guys appreciate that, right? Because then I hire a lot. All carpenters used to wait for me, decorators, painters, because mm-hmm. they knew Bill isn't going to leave us. He's going to find a picture. So I people would run because they knew, well, if, uh, yeah, we're out, we're broke. When Bill finds a picture, we're going to make a lot of money because there's going to be a lot of sets. So I always attracted a good crew. So I said, are you prepared to do that? So this one set designer said, oh, I can never be out of work. I have three kids. Mm. And I said, well, then you can't be an art director because you right. have to be out of work. You're, By the way, you're a highly paid, making thousands and thousands of dollars a week set designer. Mm. Maybe it's better to work all the time. Right. I see my salary go up and then nothing, then up and nothing because I'm picky about what I want to do. Oh, I could never do that. I, I, I have a response. I said, well, then you have to really think about that. Do you really want to be this person that, you know, and, uh, you know, I thought I want people to understand that. Hmm. Well, I guess ending with what, per, again, another perfect segue, I guess ending with what may be certainly, I think, for many casual film fans, they might even call it the jewel in the crown. One of those movies that I can imagine people waiting to work on that has brought you a lot of acclaim. Peter Weir's Master and Commander. By division, follow me! For England, for home, and for the prize!
Looks like the job is done, sir. Well, that was that was Fox Studios knew me from doing Doctor Doolittle over there and a couple little films over there, and Duncan Henderson was the producer, and uh, you know he always liked me and he liked the crew and people I brought to the project, and that was a big one. You know, and he, Peter knows his stuff. He's very demanding. So Peter met me, and we got on right away. And um, he said, and he said in print, "I never thought this. I never thought these ships could get built." I mean, that was a big one. We went down to the tank, and this is a big, empty tank. And you know, I hired all the great set designers and art directors that I usually work with, and we started designing at Fox. And uh, you know, you, this is this is one of those shows, like kind of like Perfect Storm, where you really had to immerse yourself in the minutia of life at sea mm-hmm. in a uh, you know a, a late 18th, cent- 18th century fighting ship, British fighting frigate. You know, because if you, Peter asked you about a particular piece of rigging and you didn't know what he was talking about, you know, it's like what you, you know. So you know, we built that whole boat. We had designers and. And uh, wood rights brought from Australia to you know from New England, and, you know we built a 200, well 185 foot ship in the middle of this tank. My construction crew, we built this ship. We made all the block and fall. We made the ropes. We made the sails. We that my decorator Bobby again that did cornbread early me is down mm-hmm. there with me, and he made all the hammocks are made out of uh, hemp, and the ropes out of this mm-hmm. and. You know, I had people come into my office like historians, you know, from museums. I remember this one time, it's kind of fun. He sees this lamp on my desk, like a like a carriage lamp. Somebody mm-hmm. brought it to me to okay, I guess, because we need to make a bunch for the for the movie. Because we had artisans from Italy. Bobby brought all his friends from Italy. You know, he's done Demolition Man and he did uh UB with that submarine movie over there. Oh yeah, UB five seven one. Yeah, yeah. He he knows he knows Rennie real well too. And George, you know. Anyway, um, and he's like, "Where did you get this lamp? Oh my god, I love this lamp." And I said, "Well, you know." He said, "Do you think any we can have anything? Because we made our own cannons, we made our own everything, old sails." And he said, uh, "I said, well, come with me." I took him over to this warehouse. I opened up the warehouse. And uh, uh, <laughs> there were like 150 carriage lamps like that. <laughs> I thought the guy was going to have a stroke. <laughs> you know? I said, "Well, I'm sure at the end of the end of the show." Now you know what happened. Funny, funny postscript to that movie. Well, there's. Uh, I'll talk more about the movie if you'd like. But um, at the end of the movie, we really worked. It was hard getting the proper paints and varnishes that could withstand mm-hmm. water. And everything. I went over to Disney to vi- visit some of my art directors and set designers, and they'd taken the whole, all the prints, colors, paint mixes, all the plans for the ship, and they were doing the first uh, Pirates of the Car- Caribbean. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I said, "Hey, you guys, we worked so hard. That was our special." Oh, no, yeah. But they said, "Well, Bill, we need John." I said, I, "I'm only kidding. That's fine. Whatever." So the, the first ship, when you look at that. Very poorly done, that first ship. But it's all the colors of my boat. It's all the colors ah. of our, everything's the same. Plus, they had access to a lot of the uh, props we made because we made hundreds of barrels. And, you know, there was nothing when we started that picture. Then all of a sudden, there was a flood in the prop shops of 
hmm. really finely done uh, ropes and barrels and gun cases and seamen's chests and swords mm-hmm. and you know there was all that stuff was uh, available for rent for other pictures so mm-hmm. i think pirates of the caribbean owe, owe me a, a residual for that because we developed all of that stuff at great time and expense and wow and work but all the set designers had run home run back to home with a roll of prints you know so they got a jump start on the movie <laughs> <laughs> now curious i know that film uh now, now when you talk about the tank that's the fox baja studio yeah. right yeah okay now were most of those props manufactured in the united states no in mexico all okay. down okay. there all we right. set up a, a metal shop and uh uh, we had Italians and, you know, Mexicans are great down there with metal. Mm-hmm. And we had, it was all union crew, of course, but they were all uh-huh. terrific with, um, you know, all, all of that. Uh, you know, we bought a boat, the Rose, uh, back on the East Coast that looked very similar to the Endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, sailed out uh, through the Panama Canal and up here. And then, but mm-hmm. then, of course, that ship had to be completely torn apart. I tore apart the stern, the bow. And we had what, you know, we redid all of that ship, bigger gun ports, bigger cap stands because it had different wheels, bigger mass, bigger ropes, bigger rigging, big oak stern on that ship, Jesus. big bow on that ship. So really we started because we wanted one boat to be, you know, to get these shots in the real ocean, mm-hmm. which are which are so terrific. And then we needed our, our boat on in the tank for all the kind of the close up stuff. And we built a French boat boat so there's a there's a lot of boats on that show that's for sure awesome damn well uh dude i gotta say thanks thanks for doing this that's is freaking amazing so i guess just to, to, to end things um i know you refer to yourself as a ufo enthusiast and bigfoot researcher as well yeah yeah i mean that's i have that on my business card now but certainly not the business card i had when i was working (laughs) <laughs> right, but, but now now I'm thinking, yeah, I'm free from all those restraints, uh, and I I want people to get a glimpse into what I find. F- I'm on a lot of UFO sites and a lot of uh-huh, cool. a lot of Bigfoot sites, and you know, I find all of that stuff interesting. Cool. It's kind of I kind of noticed that because when you uh, grow up like I did, um, uh, uh, addicted to TV shows like In Search of and oh, yeah. like The Legend of Boggy Creek and oh, Chariots yeah. of the Gods oh, and yeah. all those, you know, it's like cool, very very cool. I'm on. I'm I love on, to see what's happening. Lately. I'm on big. We're on. I'm on one site there. One group I belong to is called the Coalition for Critical Thinking and Bigfoot Research, and <laughs> we're the we're the most hated Bigfoot group on the whole internet because we debunk. Uh, uh-huh a lot of false stuff and blob squatches and shadows mm-hmm. and goofy stuff like that. And we have a, another one uh, in woo research. There's a lot of woo out there. And so there's a lot of phony stuff out there. So mm-hmm. we're, we're a bunch of guys older, uh, pretty smart, the guys that run it, run it. Mm-hmm. But we always wanted a Bigfoot, but we're pretty sure there isn't a Bigfoot. But there mm-hmm. might be a Bigfoot. Yeah, there might know. be, yeah. Might be. So, uh, you know, it's kind of we found a home there, you know, where we're not constantly looking at somebody shot a shadow in their backyard. Right. Or Bigfoot's telepathically communicating with them. (laughs) 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 We just filter it all through verifiable, you know, empirical. Yeah. Yeah. Once once over 50 years since the Patterson film and all the stories back in the late 50s, once people could never find any evidence of a Bigfoot. Uh, Bigfoot 
lovers and aficionados have now gone, well, Bigfoot uh, cloaks himself. Bigfoot hides in trees. Bigfoot's I've never heard that one. Spirit. Bigfoot's lands from UFOs because they can't find a real body. So now Bigfoot's devolved into this sort of woodland spirit. And you can't you know, believe paranormal. you can't yeah, paranormal. So you can't believe the goofy stuff that people really believe. I mean, after the last election, maybe you can or you know maybe you can, exactly. You can't believe. <laughs> but this is these people can believe the most amazingly dumb things you've ever heard. So but you never know. There are a lot of know. wonderful stories about people seeing these amazing creatures. So that's kind mm-hmm. of what, what I'm all about on that. Very cool. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, again, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, yeah. This no, it's, been a, it's, it's fun, Chris. This has been a joy. Yeah, good. Super awesome. Huge thanks again to Mr. William Sandell. And hey, if you didn't dig that to the max, then just hand in your I Love Movies membership card and slink away right now because there's no hope for you at all, ever. Well, that'll do it for this installment of the Movie Sneak. I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online, and meet you again next time up there in those cheap seats. Be well. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. Thank you.